It's good to be with you, and I'm excited to be with you this morning. I want to start off by asking if any of you have ever heard of John Van Warmer. No, you haven't. Well, the reality is, is that all of our lives have been touched by John Van Warmer. He was a visionary who introduced an entirely new way to contain beverages called the Gable Top Spout. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. And so thanks to John Van Warmer, this visionary, we have a different kind of life. We can contain beverages differently. And in fact, there's lots of visionaries that have made our lives what they are. Alexander Graham Bell introduced the telephone. The Wright brothers gave us the airplane. Howard, uh, Flory, and Ernst Chain turned penicillin from a laboratory curiosity into actually something that can save our lives, and many of us have needed that. Um, and so visionaries are people who see something the rest of us don't see, and as a result, our lives are different in some way. But the greatest visionary of all is Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ introduced not just one thing to change one aspect of our life, but Jesus saw something and introduced a way of life that is for all of life, that all of our life can be different. Jesus did this in a in really succinct way called the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and, and in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he raises the standard of what human life can be. He gives us this incredibly unique picture. Uh, W.H.E. Leckie described it as the most powerful moral level that has ever been applied to the affairs of man. He was a historian of morals. Jesus shows that there's a whole nother level, a whole nother way to live life. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes the moral exemplars of his day the people that everybody thought if anybody was living life well, it was those people, the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus points them out and he says, you see those people? That's nothing. That's child's play. That's just scratching the surface. I want to talk about an entirely different level of being human. And so Jesus then introduces this in the Sermon on the Mount, arguably the most important sermon ever preach. Lots of commentaries, all, all of people across the globe, their practices have been changed as a result of this teaching of Jesus. So we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, today it's my joy to come and bring you chapter six, but where have we been? Well, in chapter five, Jesus introduces the what of his vision. He challenges stock understandings of what it means to live a good life, and he sketches a new image, a new picture of what human maturity looks like. He does this through a certain phrase. He says, you've heard it said, A, but I say to you, B. And when he does this, Jesus pushes down into the core. He advances his vision by showing, again, that there's something below the surface we're missing about how we can live life. Jesus presents this picture of human life that's filled with mercy and humility Peacemaking, a world where people keep their promises and they tell the truth, a world where they forgive each other, that they treat everybody with dignity and respect, even their enemies. It's this incredible, beautiful, dazzling picture of human flourishing. And so Jesus challenges his hearers to look deeper below the surface to the source of the kind of life that they were meant for. And once you see what Jesus points out, and if you're new to Christianity, I want to tell you this. Once you see the kind of life that Jesus points out, you intrinsically know it's better. Just like, you know, 
why in the world would you have a bunch of glass bottles that you cart around with you, right? <laughs> once you see that little top that, that that guy made, like, oh, well, that makes sense. Well, once you see the kind of life that Jesus points out, that just makes sense. But then the natural question is, well, how do we get there? How do we get that kind of life? And that's where we're at today. In chapter 6 of Matthew, Jesus talks about how we become this kind of person. He talks about the kind of practices that are involved in this kind of life. So if you haven't already, you can turn to Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus unpacks the how of becoming this kind of person. The how of becoming this kind of person. And he starts with a warning. He starts with a warning. He warns us, okay, uh, that there's some things that won't work. They might seem like they would work, but they won't work. And then after this warning, he's going to outline three practices. And just like he did with the, with, the, with the what, where he said, you've heard of this, but I say this. When it comes to the how, he says, you've seen A done, but I say do B. So he's going to keep that going. And in doing this, he's going to push down once again into these practices to show that his apprentices, those who are practicing the way of Jesus, have a certain kind of fundamental drive behind everything they do. It's really impressive. So that's where we're going this morning. We're going to look at this warning that Jesus gives, and then we're going to look at these three key practices for his apprentices who want to enter into this amazing vision of life that Jesus shows us. All right, we start with Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, where Jesus gives us a warning of what won't work. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Starts with a warning. Now, now it's not that surprising. You know, if you, if you get something new, oftentimes you open it up, and the first thing you see is a big warning. It's kind of a, a letdown, Right? <laughs> You're like, all right, I got this. You can highly wait. It's like, warning, you know. All your intuitions on how to use this thing might kill you. <laughs> you know, you're like, oh, well, great. Okay. So it's not really surprising. Jesus starts with a warning, all right? He says, hey, don't trust your natural impulses and how you want to approach this thing, you know. You could actually get some, rewar- some results you did not want, all right? But there are some surprising things about this warning. Jesus warns us not about bad actions, but about good actions, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order, to see, in order to be seen by them. The word righteousness in this context can be also translated as good works or good deeds. So what does Jesus mean by this? Well, let's start with what Jesus doesn't mean by this. Jesus is not saying don't do good works. If you grew up in, uh, in, a, in a post-Reformation Protestant church like this one, sometimes the word good works, that, those two words, has kind of a bad rap, you know? And, and uh, we can think that um, with this kind of reaction to good works as opposed to, to uh, we can kind of think of earning your salvation. But, you know, Jesus actually commands in chapter 5 his apprentices to do good works, to practice mercy and truth-telling, Right? to be someone that loves even when you don't receive love. And so it's not about not practicing good works. The Bible is filled with commands for those people that are following Jesus to do good works. The book of James says if you say you're a Christian and you're not doing good works, probably something's off kilter. Probably something's wrong. You're missing a piece here. So Jesus assumes if you follow him, you're going to be practicing good works. Um, Jesus is not saying be private when you do good works, okay? Um, he's, not, he's not telling us that. In chapter 5, actually, 
just the chapter before, Jesus says, let your light shine in the presence of other people in such a way that when they see your kind good works, they will give glory to your Father in heaven. So Jesus is not saying only do good works in private, but in public live just like everybody else. (laughs) He's not saying that, okay? Jesus is not delineating good actions you do in public versus good actions you do in private. Now, there might be a reasoning for why you might want to keep something private and something public, but that's just not Jesus' point. Well, what is Jesus' point? Jesus is saying, don't practice good works before others in order to be seen by them. That's what Jesus is getting at, in order to be seen by them. That little phrase, to be seen by them, is actually, um, the Greek is actually uh, theothenai atois. It's where we get the word theatrical. And the issue here is Jesus saying, don't put on a show for other people when you're doing good works. Jesus is saying here something very important. He's saying, pay attention when you're doing good works to your motive to what's driving it. What's the engine behind your good works? Because that is the critical piece. That is the warning Jesus is giving. The reformer Martin Luther said, our righteousness can be more dangerous than our sin because it can serve the most self-centered of all human desires, self-glorification. So this is sobering. Jesus starts right off the bat, and you're ready to go, like, let's go, Jesus. I'm going to follow you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want to enter into this kind of human flourishing, this brilliant, dazzling picture you've given me of human life. Let's go. And Jesus says, oh, hold on, hold on here. Be careful. Be careful. Just because you're visibly doing good deeds, don't think you're necessarily advancing in the kind of life that I want you to live you could actually be going backwards. Wow. Scary. Sobering. I have a friend who was a fire chief in Huntington Beach. Passing by a building that was burned down completely, he said, you see that building? He said, if you would have gone by when the firefighters were fighting that fire, you would have seen veteran firefighters doing everything that looked like fighting fire. He said, But these veterans, early on, their first year, they picked up bad habits, and they have a career of losing buildings. Yeah. Scary, huh? Hope they don't come to, you know, glad we're in Sierra Madre. Hope they have a better track record here. (laughs) And Jesus is giving us this kind of sober warning. You can live a life where it looks like you are an apprentice of his, and the reality is, is that there's nothing but failure. A disaster. Scary. Sobering. So the first surprise is Jesus warns us about our good works. And then there's another surprise here. And this is the second surprise. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. I have Josh doing my slides this morning. So if they're late, you can blame Pastor Josh, all right? Um. So this is a surprise. You know, Jesus doesn't say, I want to call my apprentices to altruism. It's not what he's saying. He says reward matters. Now, Buddha said, we must get rid of the desire to be noticed. Kant said that we need to do the good in a way that is disinterested for its own sake. But Jesus says something different. Jesus says the problem is not the desire to be noticed or for reward, 
The problem is looking for that in the wrong place. Jesus warns, if you look for it in the wrong place, you will not get the notice and the reward from your Father who is in heaven. So here we are. We're right out of the gate, first verse, and already Jesus is warning us, sit up, pay attention. Just because you're doing good deeds doesn't necessarily mean you're advancing. In fact, if you're going to learn how to be my apprentices, you need to come with an exceptional clarity about your intentions, and you need to understand what it is that's your motivation, where you're seeking to be noticed, and where you're seeking your reward. And then from here, he is going to go into three practices and show how this works itself out, okay? So he's going to go into charity, verses 2 to 4. That is um, where you're acting towards others. Then he's going to go into prayer. That's verses 5 to 8, where, where we are moving towards God, and then finally fasting, verses 16 and 18, and that is acting towards ourselves. So we're going to look at these three in the remainder of this sermon, all right? Okay. In verses 2 to 18, Jesus gives us these three practices, those who want to be his apprentice. And he starts with charity, okay? Um, and, And he says this, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Now, this word, you know, giving to the needy, it's a general word about uh, helping those who are on the margins. It could be translated doing charity or social justice work or giving money or helping the poor. Um, but Jesus here says, when you do this kind of work, don't go about blowing a trumpet and drawing attention to yourself, which immediately you think to yourself, like, did people really blow trumpets? I mean, you know, and, and maybe Jesus, some commentators think Jesus is just speaking with hyperbole here. You know, he's saying, don't toot your own horn, and he's really drawing attention to that. But then some think that there actually was some trumpet blowing going on, which to me strikes me as odd. But then I think to myself, you know, we live in a culture where when you come up to a building, oftentimes somebody's name is etched in it, you know, and maybe they would have thought that's odd. You know, we go to stadiums, Gillette Stadium, you know, uh, that just seems wrong to me, you know, (laughs) Um, you know, Heinz Field. Uh, My favorite is the one in, in Louisville, Kentucky, the KFC Yum Center. Like... It's not only telling you who paid for it, but how you need to feel about them. KFC, yum. So we have our own weirdness. So maybe there was some trumpet blowing. But the point is, Jesus is saying, if you're doing this, if when you give to those who are on the margins, it's an attempt to toot your own horn. You're a hypocrite. Now, what does he mean by hypocrite? Jesus uses this word hypocrite three times, every time here for each one of these, and 70 times in the New Testament. It's his word. He likes it. He uses it alone, okay? Now, Jesus was aware of Greek theater, and this word hypocrite hypocrite just really means a Greek actor, okay? And and Jesus actually, not too far from where Jesus grew up, um, Sepphoris, uh, a town only a few miles from Jesus' home in Nazareth, had a giant Greek theater. And, and some scholars think Jesus, it was built actually during the time when Jesus was a young man as a carpenter. And, and I hate to break the news to some of you, but when we say Jesus was a carpenter, it doesn't mean that he was a woodworker. There's not a lot of trees where Jesus was from. It means he was a stonemason, okay? So he's probably one of those guys that looks more like a concrete worker, okay? And so Jesus probably, maybe, worked on this Greek theater. He certainly was aware of Greek theater, um, 
And, and during Jesus' day, they might use the word hypocrite in order to not only speak about a Greek actor that would put on the different masks, right? Um, but also to speak of deception. But Jesus takes this, turn, takes this word and he uses it differently. And he uses it actually in the same way that our, our culture that we use. It comes from the way Jesus uses it. Jesus brought this, the current use of this term as someone who acts differently in one context than in another. A person who maybe publicly appears one way, but then behind the scenes is a very different kind of person. In other words, a person who is a sham. That there's a gap between the face that greets the world, and the inner world. And Jesus says that um, if you're giving and you're doing it in such a way that's drawing attention to yourself, what you're actually doing in public is different than what's really going on inside. What's really going on inside. Jesus says, truly I say to you, if that's you, you have received your reward. Now, as I said before, Jesus is going to tell us that it's not a problem of reward. The problem is the, it's the wrong way to get the reward. It's the wrong place to look for notice. The reality is, is that we were designed for reward. We were designed to be noticed. It's part of who we are. You know, it's like pictures. Pictures intrinsically are created for a viewer. A picture is never created with no viewer in mind. We are God's artwork. We're God's workmanship. We were created to reflect the glory of God. So there's nothing wrong with wanting to be noticed. Children want to be noticed. It comes hardwired. You know, what are the two words that every child says over and over? Watch me. Mommy, daddy, watch me. You know, watch me as I climb on this. Watch me as I build this. Watch me as I poop. Mommy, daddy, watch me. <laughs> right? So the reality is, is that we are built to be noticed, to be watched. And if a child is not noticed or watched, they begin to wither. A child that is not given attention can grow up to be an adult that spends their entire life with the same game of watch me. Watch me as I drive the $70,000 automobile. Watch me as I, sit into, as I fit into a size four. Watch me as I preach. Watch me. See, the watch me game can continue on and on with an adult version. And I, this is a good place for confession. You know, as a staff, we recently did the Enneagram, which is kind of like a Myers-Briggs personality test. There's nine numbers. And, and I found out, I kind of knew this, but I was confirmed to this, that I'm a three. And, and the healthy three is a role model that inspires other people. But the unhealthy three is overly concerned with their image, Okay. Yeah, right. See, and I'm here in the pulpit. Great. Um, so some of us have unique challenges in the watch me game, okay, based on our personality. But the point here is that Jesus is not being mean. He's not saying that you have your own reward. He's not trying to be particularly mean. He's saying the interesting thing is, is that if you seek the praise of men, guess what? You will get it. Dallas Willard writes, when we want human approval and esteem and do what we do for the sake of it, God courteously stands aside because it does not concern him. He knows when he is wanted and when he is not. See, God is a perfect gentleman. And if you come to church in order to seek the praise and the approval of others, God will just stand aside and let you do the watch me game. But you will not actually encounter God. And Jesus here is warning us 
that you might actually get what you set out to get. But if you do, your love tank will remain unfilled because we were made for glory. We were made to reflect God. We were made for God to be bright and brilliant. And when we confuse that with other types of attention, we feel empty. And then, of course, we enter into the game. And the game is something which we all know what it's about. It's seeing and being seen, right? It's the game of seeing and being seen. And it's kind of a cruel game, but it's especially cruel at church. Because we're playing the seen and being seen game at church, we're doing it right within the location where the very eyes of the one that we long to see us are not looking because we're busy playing a game with each other. Maybe you think to yourself, that's not me. I'm a rugged individual. I don't care what anybody thinks. Maybe that's you. Maybe you say, you know, I play by my own rules. I'm a self-made man. I'm an American. I smoke Marlboro. Maybe that's you, okay? Well, the reality is, is that you're just simply doing another version of the same game. But instead of playing with others, you're playing it with yourself. And this is why Jesus adds, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. See, Jesus here is getting at the problem of self-surveillance. The problem of self-surveillance. We're gonna need to fix when the bells go off now, huh? Change of time. It's kinda, it's kinda neat preaching with the bells going off, all right. I don't know, I feel like maybe that was a good point. All right. <laughs> the bells rang, okay. So we live in a selfie culture. We live in an Instagram culture. And the scary thing is, is that probably the most important person that's watching your Instagram feed is you, right? Because we live in a self-surveillance culture. And, and I mean, I do it. I'll go home today after preaching the sermon and I'll sit back and I'll think how many people came up and shook my hand and said, hey, that was a good sermon. And then the temptation begins with the newsreel, like, that was a good sermon. Cavoli, you're onto something here. Like, you're a preacher, man. You, 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 you're finding it, man. You're going to go somewhere with this. And I'm letting my left hand know what my right hand is doing. And instead of this being an act of worship where I'm serving God and teaching God's word, it becomes this way where I'm trying to get my needs met. And you coming up to me might be you getting your needs met. So don't look at me. We might be in this game together, right? See, the problem in our social media age is that we can be lured more powerfully into this life of self-surveillance where there's this constant need to self-assure ourselves that our lives are beautiful, worthy, meaningful because we have unique vacations and we drive cool cars and we do things that are only unique to us and these accomplishments. But joy is never found in this. It's never found in this kind of self-justification, the self-assurance game we play. How is it found? It's found when we're loved, not for the glossy bits of our lives that can make it on social media, but when we're loved in spite of that. When we're loved as frail people whose, whose most of our lives are not really that postable. Most of our lives are not that impressive. Most of our lives are pretty frail, pretty mundane, pretty much a lot of plotting, pretty much marriages that require work, right? pretty much, you know, moments of loneliness, you see? And to know that you are loved as you really are, that is the joy that only comes from the glimpse of the Father. 
not from the game we play with ourselves or with each other. Jesus moves from this issue of giving to others, uh, from charity to prayer in verses 5 to 9. Let's take a look at this issue of prayer. So in verses 5 to 9, Jesus warns about two wrong ways to pray. He says this, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Again, here's the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So here Jesus is going to talk about two wrong ways to pray. Okay? The first one is the prayer as social convention. The second one is prayer as technique. Or maybe we might call it the first one being the religious kind of prayer and the second one being the Gentile kind of prayer. Okay? Uh, so the first kind of wrong way to pray Jesus is referring to is uh, the prayer of religious people um, who find it easy to offer prayers in church services and public events. They, they, they love to pray in the synagogue and on the street corners. Um, and they love it, why? Because they, they sense a certain kind of social energy right? Suddenly their prayer life increases when there's somebody else looking on. Um, of course, there's nothing wrong with praying in church or in public events, but the problem is when this prayer becomes about relating to our social environment. Uh, you know, oftentimes uh, we have people in our culture who say they're Christians and, and they go to church once a year. That was me. I grew up uh, in an Italian-American family, um, and we went to church once a year, Christmas. If it was like a really spiritual year, we went twice, Christmas and Easter. You know, and if you would have asked me why I was going to church, I would say, well, I'm, my family's from Italy, we're Catholic. You know, or maybe my family's from Mexico, we're Catholic. Or, or maybe, you know, maybe you're from you know, Nashville. You know? Well, I go to, I'm, I'm Baptist, and I go to church, I'm Baptist. Or maybe your family's from you know, Greece, um, we're Orthodox, we just go to church, that's what we do. Well, when people say these kind of things, do you hear what they're saying? They're saying that, that acts of prayer and, uh, to God are really more about giving a certain kind of ritual and tradition, uh, keeping that in their lives. It's about social stability. It's about um, relating to your social environment. Or, or think about politicians, you know. Jesus talks about those who, who pray on street corners, you know, those that people are there doing public prayer. Think about politicians. You know, politicians like to say things like, you know, and may God bless us all. And the people love to hear it, like, yeah, yeah, may God bless us all. But I've got news for everybody here, which isn't a surprise. When the politician is saying that, they're not really invoking the blessing of God, right? This is a social convention, okay? And it's a way in which we self-assure ourselves. And Jesus is saying, we need to watch out because our prayer lives can really be a way of just simply interacting with our social environment. Um, you know, I like the example of the Godfather. You know, why does the Godfather go to church? Not because the Godfather wants to seek first the kingdom of God. It's going to be busy shooting people all week. The Godfather goes to church because it's tradition, you know. It's the way in which you identify with your, your heritage. Um, so they say, well, how do I know? How do I know if my prayer life is merely an extension of my social environment? Jesus here gives us an acid test. He gives us an acid test. He says, listen. How do you know if you're a hypocrite? How do you know if your prayer life is really just about reinforcing your social environment? He says, go into your closet, go alone where no one can see you. And if in that moment when you're alone, it's only you and God and you have nothing to say, 
If you're bored, if you have no motivation, you're a hypocrite. There's a disconnect between the person you are in public and then really who you are in private. It's pretty sobering, right? It's, it's, it's an acid test. See, when the, if the external pressure is gone, if there's no social reason, there's no family or cultural force that is causing you to do religious things, Jesus says, watch out. Because you are in danger. You're in danger of your life simply being about reinforcing social conventions. And your prayer life really is a sham. But then he shows us another danger in verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the pagans do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Uh, The word here is translated pagans or Gentiles. It means those non-worshipping Jews. Some of them course, who would be involved in uh, worshiping the gods of mythology. Um, And he says, be careful that you don't heap up empty phrases. This word here can be translated like the idea of just a torrent of words, you know. Um, Seneca talked about prayer as a a way to fatigue the gods. You need to just keep praying and praying and praying till you wear the gods down, you know, till you get them to this place of obligation. And one of the marks of paganism is you, you approach prayer as a way to leverage against God. It's a way to put God at your disposal, to get God to do what you want God to do. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is where Elijah, the prophet Elijah, takes on 450 prophets of Baal in this contest to see whose God really is going to answer prayer. And the, and, and, and the prophets of Baal, they, they, they pray from morning until evening, and they're cutting themselves, and they're crying out, and they're screaming, and they're wailing, and they're acting up. And at the end of the day, the Bible says, and there was nothing. I love that. And then, and then Elijah you know, like twists the knife. He's like, yeah, maybe your God's relieving himself on the toilet. You know, I mean, that's, that's in the Bible. It's pretty funny. But, um, you know, both of these kinds of prayers, the religious prayer, right, where it's really about social convention, and then the prayer of the, of the Gentile, the pagan, where it's about getting God to do your bidding, they're alive and well today, you know. One is the religious person, right, who goes to church because that's what they do. But one is the, the person who would say, I'm spiritual but not religious. These people have all kinds of techniques in prayer. There's all kinds of books on prayer, you know. You know, how to get, you know, how to live your best life now and how to get what you really want. You know, how to leverage God, how to get prayer so you can get what you want. And Jesus says both of those are bad news. Both of them um, are fallacious. What's the problem? Well, the problem is, is that um, whether you're a religious person or you're a person who's just, maybe you're, you're not a believer, but we all, Jesus says, Jesus seems to assume here that everybody prays. And the reality is, is that every single one of us, even if you're an atheist here today, if it hits you, if you've got cancer, if you're going through it, you're going to try to leverage whatever higher powers or energies in the universe there might be. You may not call it prayer, but we know what you're doing. And Jesus says that everybody is going to, at some point, attempt to tap in for different reasons. But here's the deal. Whether you're the religious person and you have no intimacy with God, or you're the spiritual person and you don't recognize that it's God's universe, that he is Lord, um, you're missing out. You're missing out on what prayer is about. I'm not going to get into um, the Lord's Prayer next week. Pastor Josh is going to bring us into that. But I am going to tiptoe in without stealing Josh's thunder. Jesus here, easy. easy. Jesus here goes after two, both of these things. 
in the very beginning of the Lord's Prayer. He starts off towards those who have religious prayer, and he says, when you pray, pray, our Father. Notice the intimacy there? Our Father. If you say somebody is your Father, what does that mean? There's an intimacy there. Prayer is, prayer, the religious person, the problem is it's all about each other, but there's no intimacy with God. And then he says, pray your kingdom come, your will be done. This is going after the person that wants to leverage God. It's not until the, after you've recognized God in intimacy and you've recognized that this is God's world and God's kingdom is what matters, that then all those requests come. And so the person who's trying to leverage God is also uh, dissuaded from that. So we've looked at charity and we've looked at prayer. And then finally, Jesus talks about fasting. Jesus talks about fasting. Jesus says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fast may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may um, be seen by your father who sees in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, the Bible has a ton to say about fasting. And I'm not going to do a whole Bible study on fasting. But we need to know that this is an important subject in the Bible. There's all kinds of fasting. There's regular public fasts for special days, such as the Day of Atonement. Um, there's fasts that are special ways of petitioning God. For instance, when Ezra was overcome by the shameful compromise of his people, he fasted. When Esther realized that her people might be demolished, called for a fast for three days. Um, fasting can be a way of seeking God for direction. For instance, Daniel does this. Or Paul, after his Damascus Road experience, fasted for three days, seeking direction. Jesus said that when the bridegroom is gone, his followers will fast. And indeed, in Acts chapter 13, once Jesus ascends, we see the apostles fasting. Now, we're in a season of Lent. And Lent is a, a season when Christians have historically fasted. Um, and, and it's for 40 days. And this is in line with Jesus' own fast for 40 days. But of course, fasting is not always just about food. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul talks about married couples fasting from their union for a period of focused prayer. So fasting really is about times in our lives where we take something off in order to put something new on. Um, and this season, we as a congregation are paying attention to our micro practices. We're paying attention to our use of sugar and alcohol, our social media, our electronic devices, we're looking at our lives and we're asking, is there anything that would be helpful for me to take a break from? And, or, and, and is there a way in which I can then open up and refocus for some spiritual breakthrough in some other areas of my life? Um, and so that's what we're doing. Um, and, and this is a way in which really, it's something we should be, you know, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're an apprentice of Jesus, fasting just simply means that you can't hold on tightly to the routines and practices of your life. You need to constantly leave those open to God so that everything is available to God so that we can seek first God's kingdom. And so we talked about charity where you're given to others. We talked about prayer where you're, you're moving towards God. But now we're talking about attending to our own lives with fasting. And I think the most incredible thing here is that Jesus assumes his followers will have times where they need to assess their habits and practices and put on new practices. And when you fast, he says. Um, and of course, here's the warning. And, th and, and this might be very real for some of us because some of you are actually fasting. When you decide to give things up, don't become grumpy. And that's hard, right? Some of you are like, amen, brother. And I lost an hour of sleep this morning too on top of this fast. 
But Jesus says, don't be grumpy. Now, why does Jesus say that? And here's the reason. Jesus says that is because when you decide to let go of something is an act of obedience, whatever that micro practice is, there's an opportunity for intimacy with God where you keep that just between you and God. And in fact, anybody that's ever been in love knows that one of the marks of great intimacy is you have your own private world where you just keep those insights. You just know because it's just something that you and that other person share. And so Jesus is saying here that sometimes letting go of things can be ways of increasing our intimacy with God as, as we let go of that thing, whatever that might be for a season or maybe for a lifetime. We keep that between us and God. And everybody that is a follower of Jesus, an apprentice of Jesus, has these secrets with God. And so a good question is, what are the secrets you keep between you and God? What are those secrets? Do you have secrets that are just things you keep between you and God? During this Lent season, maybe you could develop one of those secrets. Because here's the reality. Over and over, there's a phrase here, and I love this phrase. Jesus again and again says, the Father who sees in secret. The Father who is in secret. See, to be an apprentice of Jesus means that there's a secret part to our life. There's a part to our life that is very private and secret. It's a part that is reserved for the Father who is in secret. And all those who've gone far in following Jesus have known what it looks like to live below the radar. Jesus is calling us to be icebergs, that there would be a depth to our lives, that it's all about our intimacy and our privacy with God, that as we give to others, that really there's a communion with God in that giving. And as we pray, there's really something deeply personal and intimate that we go and we pray when we're alone with the Father. And when we reassess our lives, it's a way in which we can build that kind of intimacy. And through this, we develop a secret life with God and we feed on that life. That life gets momentum. That life is what drives us and propels us through life. It's the driving force of our life. And all those who've gone way far in the way of Jesus have this character trait. Brother Lawrence called it practicing the presence of God. Brother Lawrence says sometimes he would just sit there and imagine when he was in a room full of people that he was alone with God. And then he would just fellowship with God even though he was in a crowd. He called it practicing the presence of God. Teresa of Avila speaks of the interior castle. She talked about her heart being this castle and in the very center was the throne room. She had built the secret life with God. John Calvin described it as union with Christ. It's where he enter, you enter into the fellowship of the union we have with Christ. Soren Kierkegaard called it the singleness of heart that anyone who's a follower of Jesus develops. That ancient Irish hymn, Be Thou My Vision, calls it entering into the heart of my own heart. And the Puritans, this is the tradition we're a part of, called it living with the audience of one. Living with the audience of one. And our spiritual lives are only as real as our secret life with the Father. 
Our staff as a church is only as strong as our secret life with the Father. Our elders are only equipped for leadership as elders to the degree they have a secret life with the Father. Our deacons are only equipped to model service to the degree they have a secret life with the Father. Every single one of us, our church can be measured by the degree to which we have a secret life with the Father. Jesus over and over says, this is where your reward is. This is what you were made for. Intimacy with the Father. That God is your vision. That we were made to walk with God. And maybe you came in this morning and you've spent your life scratching itches, attempting to get other people to notice you, attempting to even feel good about yourself. The reality is, is that you are, and this is the words of John Bellion, stupid deep. You're ridiculously deep. You have a hole that cannot be filled, except for by the gaze of the Father. That is the reward that you've been looking for. Jesus says you're scratching the surface. You were made to be an iceberg, to have this deep, rich, intimate walk with God. That's what you were made for. And if that's you, and you've never started off on that journey as an apprentice of Jesus, I want to encourage you, when you go home, I want you to get down on your knees, and I want you to cry out to God and say, God, you are my father. I was made for you. I invite you into my life. I want to walk with you. I want to know you. I want to serve you. I want to live my life no longer alone. Because I was made to be seen by you, to be known by you, to be loved by you and you will find the reward, the ultimate reward of life. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have guided us through your word. We ask for your grace that we might enter into a deeper walk with you. Forgive us if we've become lazy and remind us that there are farther, farther fields to go. There's more intimacy, more love, there is so much more because you have, you, Lord Jesus, through your death, burial, and resurrection have opened the way for us to be known, to be loved, to have an intimate walk.